Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, April 20th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, jury deliberations underway in the trial of Derek Chauvin as that city and others around the country prepare for potential unrest. President Biden and his vice president, Kamala Harris, Meeting with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus today, the influx of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, just one of a number of pressing issues being discussed. And a look at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the CDC recommending enhanced monitoring for those receiving that particular shot. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. All eyes are on Minneapolis as that city and the nation awaits a verdict in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the former officer charged in the death of George Floyd. The prosecution and defense resting their case, then providing closing arguments. Now the case is in the hands of jurors. The prosecution made their closing argument clear. It's exactly what you saw with your eyes. It's what you now know in your heart. This wasn't policing. This was murder. Prosecutor Stephen Schleicher telling jurors George Floyd was not a threat, pushing back on the defense's notion that he was experiencing a surge of strength during the struggle. Just a human, just a man lying on the pavement, being pressed upon, desperately crying out. For an hour and 45 minutes, the prosecution pushed the point that the police force itself is not on trial, just one rogue officer. Later, defense attorney Eric Nelson taking nearly three hours for his closing arguments. A reasonable police officer would, in fact, take into consideration the previous 16 minutes and 59 seconds. Their experience with the subject, the struggle that they had. Nelson doubling down, arguing the bystanders seemed like a threat, and Floyd's drugs and heart disease was the real cause of his death. The judge also denying the defense motion for a mistrial. At issue were these comments made by Democratic Representative Maxine Waters about the trial and what protesters should do. Well, we, we got to stay on the street, uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they they know that we need business. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution, to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. But the judge adding this. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. Waters later denied she was encouraging violence. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also saying Waters does not need to apologize for her comments. Now it all comes down to this. Members of the jury, the case is in your hands. Deliberations lasted well into the night for the diverse jury, whose members range in age from 20 to 60. Five men, seven women, four are black, six are white, and two identifying as multiracial. Outside the courtroom, the city and rest of the country is watching as the people of Minneapolis prepare for potential fallout from the verdict.
Cities across the country are prepared for possible unrest in Minneapolis. 2,000 National Guard members are on standby. The governor has asked for help from Ohio and Nebraska. And for more, let's go to Luis Mejid right there in Minneapolis. He has a look at what jurors have been left to consider. Luis? Thank you. We're across the courthouse, a courthouse that today looks more like a fortress. Uh, Minneapolis and the nation are tensely awaiting the verdict. The future is in the hands of 12 members of the jury. After delivering yesterday for a few hours, they got together again this morning, trying to decide whether Derek Chavez, the officer uh, of the Minneapolis Police Department, is guilty of the murder of George Floyd. To say that the city stands is uh, perhaps an understatement. All across downtown Minneapolis, there are uh, windows, doors boarded up, and uh, there's a high fence around the courthouse and thousands or perhaps uh, hundreds of members of the National Guard in standby. The city hopes for the best, but is prepared for the worst. Many of the protesters that will show up tonight, as they've been doing it day after day, will only accept a guilty verdict as justice. And that has the whole city on edge. Even though the prosecution has presented a pretty strong and compelling case, let's remember that it only takes one member of the jury to disagree to have a hung jury. This is all from downtown Minneapolis. Back to you. Thank you, Louise, for that report. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are meeting with members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus today. Those lawmakers are expected to press the White House on immigration and Latino representation in the administration. Edwin Piti has the latest details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. That's right, Andrea. Even though the focus of the Biden administration has been on how to work with Congress to pass a roughly $2 trillion infrastructure bill, today immigration was front and center during the meeting between President Biden and leaders of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Biden started the meeting by saying they were there to discuss a whole range of issues. Among those meetings with the president are Representative Raul Ruiz, Nanette Barragan, Adriano Spayad, Darren Soto, Teresa Leger Fernandez, Pete Aguilar, Linda Sanchez, and senators, as you can see on the screen, Ben Luján, Bob Menendez, and Catherine Cortez Masto. In the Oval Office meeting, Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and the lawmakers discussed the border crisis, the future of a comprehensive immigration reform, and diversity in his administration. Besides immigration, taking most of the time of the meeting, President Biden discussed his jobs plan with the Hispanic Caucus, especially because there continues to be Republican opposition to the plan, and the White House is seeking congressional support to approve his massive bill. Andrea? When on a separate note now, the president made his first public comments on the Chauvin trial at that meeting. What exactly did he say? Yes, the president said that he's praying for the right verdict, also noting that he has spent time with the Floyd family and even called on them on Monday to offer them prayer, saying, quote, he can only imagine the pressure and anxiety they are feeling. Let's listen. And um, they're a good family and they're called for peace and tranquility, no matter what that verdict is. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is, I think it's overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the, the jury was sequestered now, not hear me say that. 
But so we, we just talked to them. I want to know how they were doing, just personally. And we talked about personal things. As the rest of the country, the White House awaits for the verdict, and President Biden could address the nation right after it. During his Oval Office meeting with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, Biden also said that he was only waning on the trial into the death of George Floyd because the jury in the case had been sequestered. Live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin, for those details from Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, it'll be a busy next two weeks for the president with ongoing bipartisan infrastructure talks, a major coronavirus-related speech on Wednesday, and next week his first address to Congress just before he marks his 100th day in office. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Chris Liu. He's a former Obama White House cabinet member and a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Chris, welcome to U News once again. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Next week, as we just said, will be the president's 100th day in office. He has a number of ambitious goals, and he has met some of those. What's your reaction to that? Well, from day one, this president and his administration have been laser-focused on the pandemic. They set an ambitious goal of 100 million doses of the vaccine in the first 100 days. Uh, when they quickly met that mark, they doubled it to 200 million. And over the weekend, we saw the statistic that 50% of Americans have already re uh, received their first dose of the vaccine. So on that measure, which really was one of the main reasons why he won election, uh, he succeeded. Uh, he's also pushed very hard for an economic relief package to get this economy back up and running. And his administration is working hard uh, to get the money out the door from the $1.9 trillion package that was passed last month. So on, on the pandemic and on the economy, uh, he's done quite well. On Monday, the president met with a bipartisan group of lawmakers to discuss his $2 trillion infrastructure and jobs plan. And this is what he had to say. Let's listen. I asked senators and congressmen who had either been governors or mayors, because they know what it's like to make things work, to make sure that uh, you uh, get things done and uh, deal with infrastructure. What is the status of this proposal? Well, like everything else, it is uh, completely uh, engulfed in partisan politics, and it shouldn't be that way uh, because there's nothing particularly partisan about roads or bridges or broadband or safe drinking water. And it's one of the reasons why the president did meet with the mayors and governors, because they understand that so much of the issues involving infrastructure fall on uh, state and local governments. There does seem to be a consensus about one part of the package, which is the traditional infrastructure projects. Uh, the problem is always how you pay for all of this. The president uh, has suggested rolling back some of the Trump tax cuts on corporations, and that's really a non-starter for many Republicans. But what is significant is the president has said to bipartisan lawmakers, come back with another proposal. If you don't like what we have, then why don't you suggest something else? And so I do think he wants to work in a bipartisan manner on this issue. And frankly, when you look at the public opinion poll, there's wide bipartisan support among the American people around this package. Later this week, the president will convene a virtual climate summit in which he is expected to pledge to cutting emissions. But this could be politically tricky for him. What's your take on that? This is, again, one of the central campaign pledges was to uh, really address this problem of uh, climate change and, and something that has really been 
uh, put to the back burner on, over the last four years. And so it's going to require efforts both here at home and abroad. And one of the first efforts that President Biden made was to rejoin the climate, uh, the Paris Climate Accords. But as importantly, it's going to have to get other countries to step up their commitments. And so, um, you know, just simply having the summit uh, is a significant departure from what we've seen over the last four years. Uh, but there are very difficult um, uh, there are def very difficult proposals and policy changes that every country is going to have to adopt uh, if we're going to start to take it this seriously. Another issue on the table, gun control. As the nation struggles with a wave of mass shootings, President Biden is calling for action on this, on gun control. Can he be the first president in decades to successfully address gun violence in this country? You know, this is yet another one of those issues where there is a broad bipartisan support among the American people for something simple as background checks uh, on, on gun purchases. And yet, you know, time and time again, we have struggled to get this done. And we've seen this despite the mass shootings that have occurred over the last couple of administrations. You know, I was with uh, President Obama uh, when he uh, in the White House back in 2012 when we had the Sandy Hook shootings. And I would have thought at that moment when uh, 20 first graders were killed uh, in their classrooms that that would have galvanized the U.S. Congress to take action, and it didn't. And so sadly, we continue to have this um, set of mass killings that seem to happen every week now. Um, and yet, so while I'm hopeful action gets done, I also understand the political dynamics in Washington. And last but not least, next Wednesday, President Biden is set to deliver his first address to Congress. What can we expect? Again, I think you're going to see the president talk about um, his accomplishments and his uh, ability both to get uh, vaccines out the door as well as money out the door and really to make good on the promise he made during the campaign. I think he'll be looking ahead and he'll be making a forceful um, uh, a, 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 a forceful uh, plea to get the infrastructure uh, bill passed. Uh, I think he'll also be laying out the second infrastructure proposal that will come out shortly that'll deal with things like uh, pre-K education, community colleges, childcare. Uh, and so I think he'll be setting forth the agenda for the next six months next year. Thank you so much for your time, Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you. Meanwhile, a deadly last week of gun violence across the United States with mass shootings in six states, bringing the total since last month to at least 50. Rafael Rodriguez reports on the incidents and growing calls for stricter gun laws. The first light is in honor of Matthew R. Alexander. Delivering even more disturbing news in the wake of the mass shooting in their city, Indianapolis police announcing that the 19-year-old who fatally shot eight people at a FedEx facility before killing himself had purchased the two assault rifles that he used legally in July and September of last year. That purchase, despite the suspect's mother raising concerns to police about his mental state just a few months earlier and authorities confiscating a shotgun from him. The Indianapolis police chief telling the New York Times authorities had not tagged the suspect under the state's so-called red flag law, which temporarily bans people who were found by a judge to be too dangerous from possessing a firearm. It lets me know that there's a, a lapse somewhere in the double check system with regards to red flags. And so if, if you have an individual who's already had their guns confiscated, you know, there needs to be maybe a separate section 
within the statistical data that these people are now housed so that they can be readily identified and not get lost in the crowd, if you will. This comes as the nation is gripped by more gun violence over the past few days, including a seven-year-old shot multiple times and killed in the drive-through lane of a McDonald's in Chicago. On Sunday, three killed, three wounded during a shooting at a bar in Kenosha, Wisconsin. One person killed and five others, including a 12-year-old, wounded by gunfire on Saturday as they attended a vigil for a shooting victim in Columbus, Ohio. Six people injured when someone opened fire at a 12-year-old's birthday party in a New Orleans suburb. All told, at least nine dead and several wounded just in the past few days across six states. And since the Atlanta area spa shootings on March 16th, there have been at least 50 mass shootings reported in the United States. When you see people getting killed, I mean, in this last month, it's just been horrifying what's happened. How can you say that's not a public health issue? What also has health professionals and public officials worried is the idea of Americans simply accepting this kind of violence. We must guard against resignation or even despair. The assumption that this is simply how it must be and that we might as well get used to it. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. The CDC is warning of new symptoms that may be related to adverse side effects of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This as the White House fights back vaccine hesitancy and announces plans to invest in underdeserved communities. Lorraine Caceres has the latest. Giving an update on the pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. These have been a handful of cases, not an overwhelming number of cases. We are working through and adjudicating them and verifying whether they do, in fact, uh, reflect a true case. Um, and that will be the work of um, the CDC this week, as well as the FDA. And then uh, we will present that to ACIP on Friday. So we're, we're doing that work right now. We are um, encouraged that it hasn't been an overwhelming number of cases, but we're looking and seeing what's come in. The agency now warning about new symptoms related to possible adverse side effects, recommending people vaccinated with J&J seek medical treatment immediately if they experience headache, backache, neurological symptoms, abdominal pain, shortness of breath, leg swelling, tiny red spots on the skin, and new or easy bruising. The Surgeon General saying lifting the pause will likely involve certain restrictions. I anticipate a decision will come on the order of, of days, you know, but it'll require the CDC to and FDA to come together to make that decision. But it, it may involve, for example, restrictions around age uh, or gender, uh, depending on what the data, data tells them. Meanwhile, the White House fighting vaccine hesitancy, investing $150 million to focus on underserved areas, funding clinics that serve low-income communities. And as Dr. Fauci, I think so well said, allow people to get the information that they need to make the decision about whether to get vaccinated or not. So we are going to make sure everybody, no matter where you are in the country, has ample opportunity to get vaccinated. We are not going to, um, quote unquote, punish uh, less, uh, less ready areas. We're going to actually work harder with them to make sure that people have the information they need. A new Quinnipiac poll showing younger Americans are less likely than older Americans to get vaccinated. Here's the bottom line. 
Getting a vaccine will help protect you. It will help protect others and it will help us end this pandemic. The more people get vaccinated, the fewer infections there will be, which means fewer variants will emerge and fewer breakthrough infections will occur. And the quicker we can get back to doing the things we love. And the State Department, meanwhile, is saying it's going to update its travel advisory to be more aligned with the CEC recommendations. That means they're going to upgrade the list of countries of do not travel to about 80% of nations uh, around the globe. Uh, Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Yale and Columbia are the latest universities to require COVID-19 vaccines. Yale says all undergraduate, graduate and professional school students are expected to be fully vaccinated before arriving on campus this fall. The school adding that it is still considering whether to include faculty and staff in that mandate. Columbia University made a similar announcement Monday. It says it has university-operated sites offering both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. At least 35 colleges and universities so far have mandated COVID-19 vaccines this fall. And women across the country are turning out more than men to get their COVID-19 vaccine. Data from the CDC shows that more than 65 million American women, or 54.4%, have gotten at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose, despite making up 50.8% of the U.S. population. In the meantime, almost 55 million men, or 45.6%, have received at least one dose. The trend is relatively consistent across the states. Meanwhile, as the nation's economy starts to show signs of life after being battered by the coronavirus pandemic for over a year, there could be some more good news, courtesy of the IRS. Andrew Peña explains. The Internal Revenue Service says that more than 700,000 Americans will receive supplemental stimulus checks after filing their 2020 tax returns. Estas personas que ganaban probablemente más del... Those people who probably earned more than the income limit, now they qualify. The additional payments will be sent to taxpayers who got a stimulus check based on their 2019 tax return and now qualify for higher payments given that their income decreased in 2020 because of the pandemic or people who reported a new dependent. Becoming unemployed, grabbing unemployment. Upon losing her job, Rosa Maria Alvarez's income decreased significantly, and with two children, the stimulus is a relief. It's quite helpful because they are giving for children 1400 per person. It's helped a lot. According to the IRS, two million additional payments have started to be processed. This includes checks for veterans who did not file taxes and those who did not provide a bank account for direct deposit. Do your taxes before the deadline that this year got extended until May 17, 2021. Reported by Romy de Frias in Los Angeles. Andrew Peña, Unis. New video coming in showing Border Patrol agents patrolling the Rio Grande as they come across two migrant children clinging to an island bank. You can see the water's powerful current as an agent gestures for the kids to wait. He slowly maneuvers the airboat over to the kids, then helps the two hundred children ages 7 and 13 to safely board the boat. The children, who are not related 
told authorities they were separated from their mothers in Mexico. They said a man claimed he would help them cross into the U.S., but the children were abandoned on the riverbank. A CBP official says the children are doing well and healthy. Meanwhile, a new report from UNICEF has found that there are nine times more migrant children in Mexico now than there were three months ago. Since the beginning of this year, that number has gone from 380 to nearly 3,500. UNICEF estimates that an average of 275 additional migrant children find themselves arriving in Mexico every day. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. You News, your world, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In Texas, a very special dog is being called a hero. Kelia Tejada brings us the story of Astro the Pitbull. Because of his body size, Astro commands respect and even fear. However, this pitbull is actually very peaceful and a true hero. He saved his owner's life when he suffered a medical emergency while driving. The patient unluckily falls into a restricted area when he collapsed, an area that you can't see from the street that there was a person laying there. When Astro realized that his owner was in danger, he went out a window to look for help. He began to bark, to run, to move around, and that caught the attention of a passing person. That's when he started following him until eventually the dog guided him to where the patient was. The Good Samaritan called emergency services. When the rescuers arrived, Astro did not want to separate from his owner. He tried to get into the ambulance. He tried to get into the stretcher. It it was hard work to separate him from the person. If it wasn't for him, my son wouldn't be here. This is like a movie. We are more than thankful. Astro's owner is already out of danger, and this super canine received a medal of recognition from El Paso Fire Department. A bakery also made him a delicious canine cake that he instantly devoured. Just three months ago, the family was about to give Astro up for adoption because their house caught fire and they weren't allowed to keep him in the apartment they rented. Thank God there was no one who wanted him because he had to be there for a reason. And now they will never let him leave. Astro proved once again that dogs are men's best friend. Reported by Maria Eugenia Payan in El Paso, Texas. Kelia Tejada, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.